Addiction, the very word sends a shudder down our spines. Whether it's behavioral addiction, psychological addiction, or physical addiction, it conveys one of the saddest elements in a person's life, and that is that we're enslaved to something. It controls us instead of we controlling it. That is definitely the way the word is seen today. But you know something? The origins of addiction have many other meanings as well. Not all negative. And they can actually provide insight into what lies at the root and the heart of addiction. It's one thing dealing with its symptoms. And it's very another thing to deal with the root of the issue. Please join me in this special program. Kabbalah and Addiction, a 12-step program, and discover a new and surprising way to look at addiction. So whatever you may be addicted to, you will learn that there is actually a positive element and when harnessed properly, can be directed to literally changing your life and changing the world around you. Hi, this is Simon Jacobson, and we will be speaking about Kabbalah and Addiction, a 12-step program. This class is dedicated in honor of a Rafur Shlema for Rafal and Yeshua ben Tzviah. Addiction. The very concept, the very word, sends a shudder down our spines. It implies the idea that a person is not in control of themselves, but whether it's a substance or a behavior or psychological dependence on something that controls you instead of you controlling it. A form of enslavement. There are statistics show that there are over 20, 30 million people just in the United States alone that are addicted to something. I would submit it's probably higher than that because how many people are addicted and what they call fun functioning addicts. They function well, and they're even in denial. They won't even tell you they're an addict, and they don't even think they are. So it's not that easy to quantify and determine how many there are, but it's no question that it's plaguing our society. And when I say addiction, I mean across the board. There's behavioral addictions, psychological, physical addictions to substances, whether it's drugs or alcohol, whether it's gambling, porn, sex addictions, and many others of different forms and fashions. And indeed, in response to this problem, you have the various interventions, rehab programs, 12-step programs, whether it's AA or NA or SA, the different forms of Alcoholics Anonymous, Sex Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, different methods to help people get out of their addictions because we know an addiction does not remain stable. It will affect and spill over to every aspect of one's life. Because when something takes hold of you, you can't focus in other areas. There's no balance. 
And as I said before, many of us can be addicted and we don't even acknowledge or even aware of it until, unfortunately, someone hits rock bottom. So how do we address this issue? Not on a symptomatic level, but on a root level. What lies in the heart and soul, that very anatomy of the word and concept of addiction, of an addict? So let's take an interesting twist on this and look at it from the other, from the other perspective. I don't mean to sound morbid, but someone who's not alive, a dead person, is not addicted to anything. Someone who's a complete zombie or is not feeling anything and is numb is not going to be addicted. Addiction is actually a force. It's a force that's misdirected toward the wrong things. But the very force is, a, is something very much alive. That's what keeps the addict alive. And I remember this fellow telling me that he said, I was just addicted. I didn't even consider myself addicted. It was just to grass, to weed, marijuana. But I realized that I was waking up 4 o'clock in the morning because I needed my new hit. So even though physically weed is not considered an addictive substance, but psychologically, what it does to you when you start feeling that calm, the bliss, whatever other elements gets rid of some of your anxiety. And it took years, he said, for me to discover that I was addicted. And it was affecting me because everything was driven about when do I take my next hit? When do I get my next high? So when you think of it that way, there's something, there's an energy in there. The person is driven for something. How many people wake up 4 o'clock in the morning or 2 o'clock in the morning? Now, of course, that tells you that there's power. The question is, where is that power being directed toward? So let's establish first and foremost that addiction is an energy. But like all energy, like fire. Fire, if it's an energy that's uncontrolled and it controls you, what will it do? It will destroy. It will annihilate. When the fire is harnessed and controlled, you control it, then it can warm food. It can heat a kettle. It can bring warmth into an environment, into a home. The sunlight... If it was too close to this earth, it would burn it up. If it was too far, the earth would freeze. So you have to have balance in everything, and especially when things are powerful. So we can establish axiom number one, is that the very fact that someone has addiction to something means there's an energy. Now, where that energy is coming from and what's motivating that energy, that needs to be looked at. It could be motivated by pain. person has a lot of pain, back pain. I remember meeting someone who used to live in my community, and he was unfortunately an alcoholic. He was a very good man. I said to him, why are you so, so bound, so enslaved by it? And he told me when he was young, he had chronic back pain, and the only thing that relieved it was drinking. So pain, there was a force of energy that drove him toward becoming an alcoholic. It was his only way of relieving the pain. Had he had not pain, and he was just living a very so-called, I don't call it mediocre because that's not the right word, but a, a life of a painless life, he would not have been driven to, toward that. So you see, the root of it came from a very powerful force. It was a negative force, and he needed something to counter it, to somewhat numb the pain. So that's one force that can be. Now, it can be another force as well. Someone's looking for some purpose, some meaning in life, and they don't find it in a healthy way. Think of someone going into the desert, and they become thirsty, looking for something desperate to drink. 
So if you're not in a place of desperation, you drink. You're not, you're not so driven. But when you're desperate for a drink, whatever will come your way. And if it happens to be toxic, too bad. But you will grab it immediately and just gulp down the drink. If it's water, great. If it's not, too bad, too sad. So you see, again, it's always coming from an energy. The question is, how is that energy being quenched? How is that thirst or hunger or need being resolved? So if you really look at it, addiction comes in that sense. So when you look at the etymology of the word, actually, originally, addiction had many other meanings. In one place, addiction is sometimes described as actually devotion, attachment, sacrifice, and in the same breath, also betrayal, abandonment, and enslavement. Because the very concept is basically a form of attachment. The question is, what are you getting attached to? Now, if someone says to you, I need attachment in my life, let's not use the word addict. Addict. Everyone say, of course you need attachment. For nine months, every child is nurtured in its mother's womb, which is a total form of 24-7, total, total immersion, attachment, and connection to the womb of your mother. Early childhood, as soon as a child is born, the attachment, the, mother, the, the nursing of the child, the cuddling of the child, the love, this is critical. Just as a child needs food and drink and sleep, it also needs that attachment. So attachment per se is a beautiful thing, not only beautiful thing, a necessary thing. When a child is detached or not attached to a parent, it can have tremendously long-term consequences. Attachment is physical, but also emotional, also psychological. So it's a critical component, attachment. Now let's say a person did not have the healthy attachment, what will happen? We will seek attachment in our lives because we must have love. We must have connection. And if you can't find it in a healthy place, just as I said with the analogy of the desert, of the parched, a thirsty, extremely desperate, thirsty person, you'll grab whatever comes your way. You'll get attached to things, whatever relieves your pain, whatever will satisfy the need to find connection. Now, it could end up being something that is very destructive, where that thing takes control of your life. So we see it that way, the root of it, we'll call it the Kabbalah of addiction. The soul, the spirit of it, is that the, addiction, the addictive person is devoted, is dedicated the key is to be find the dedication to the right, the object of the desire, the object of the devotion, the object of the attachment should be a healthy one. So it's not the, per se the problem is not the attachment, not the need, the hunger, but, the direct, but how to fill that hunger, how to satisfy that thirst. Now, of course, once a person gets attached to the wrong thing, it's not that easy. You can't just say, you know what, instead of having this for giving you a high, or whatever it is, whether it's behavioral or physical, that's going to give you that relief. Here, why don't you try this, which will give you relief, but in a healthy way. Because now you have found a situation, which is where the real problem becomes, where you can't distinguish between the object and the drive. The power and need for attachment and the object that is satisfying that attachment. They become inseparable. You think that it is whatever it is, whether it's gambling or sex or alcohol or or drugs, or certain type of behaviors, it becomes inseparable, and in your mind, you can't separate between the two. That's where it becomes so difficult.
but it's critical first to establish that they are not one and the same. In other words, the object is not coming from the same place as the root. And that's, that's vital in any form of healing. That awareness. Awarenesses have the cure. Now, awareness requires a lot of meditation and thought, support of others, to come to discover that you can find the same, you can find the same relief in healthy ways. That's the overall picture. Obviously, if it was so simple, we would have a, one of the biggest problems in our times solved. So therefore, in execution and implement, implementing this is the challenge, which we'll talk about in the next part of this, uh, of this class. But I want to add another point, and that's the point of the fact that we have the time to get addicted. You know, when you're running for your life, or you're in the middle of a war, or in any other thing that you need to really fight for your survival, you have no time to get addicted to things. So addiction, another cause of it, is the result of a leisure and a certain comfort zone. So though addictions go back to the beginning of history, and we'll talk about that shortly as well, but in some ways it's become a, a mass, critical mass problem because of the leisure of our time. I've mentioned a number of times Admiral Adam Rickover, was a Jew came from Poland and escaped to the, the pogroms of Europe. And he arrived at the shores of the United States in the mid-20th century and rose in the ranks and became a four-star admiral, which in the Navy is the highest rank. There's no five stars, it's a four-star admiral. He was called the father of the nuclear, nuclear submarine. So he was a brilliant man and had a very unique personality. He gave a talk in 1955. I found a statistic that he shared to be fascinating and tremendously insightful if you want to understand the trends of our times. And what he said was, to paraphrase, that when you consider from the time 1855 to 1955, I may be off with the years, but something like that, the generation of energy, what generates energy in this world, he says in 1855, I believe 85 or 90% of energy was generated by human labor, by human beings, toiling in the fields or hard work and so on. In 1955, 85 or 90% of energy is generated by machines. And what are the two implications? It's not a small, small shift. Of course, it's due to the Industrial Revolution and the advent of technology. You can imagine today... You don't even have to go walk to a store. You can get it delivered to your home within 20 minutes or a half hour or an hour by Amazon that the numbers are probably even higher than that. What are the implications? So he's mentioned two implications. One is an enormous astronomical growth of wealth because now the one who controls the buttons, the one who controls, let's say, the agricultural department or the farms. So yes, if you own the many farms, you made more money, but at the end of the day, how much energy can be generated by human beings? There's a certain limit. A person toils in the field nine hours a day, so they yield the amount of rice or potatoes or grain and so on. But once you have machines doing it, you yield so much more, and the human labor just needs to press a button, so the profits, the profit margins, and the growth exploded. So wealth exploded in tremendous ways. The second implication, which he doesn't elaborate so much about, but he mentions, if I recall correctly, is the, the amount of the, the birth of leisure. 
What happened to all that time? If you no longer have to toil under the sun in a field to have a meal for dinner, potatoes, rice, bread, whatever it may be, and you have all that time because animals are doing it or machines are doing it even better, then what happened with the, what, what did people do with this free time? So you'd think if they were really driven properly, they would be now driven towards spiritual uh, activities. No, they began becoming bored and needed to create something to fill that time. We call it leisure. So the birth of the concept of leisure was born. I have a lot of time. And that changed another reality. Even though I'm sure people took vacations and there was fine forms of leisure and recreation, entertainment, but now so much more time. Now this he doesn't say. But what comes down to it, when you have a lot of time in your hands, what happens? You become bored. And you need something to excite you. That's human nature. As we said earlier, a human being is not a corpse. We need stimulation. We need something to get us going. Something to, 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 uh, to elevate us. If you can't find a healthy way, what will you do? You'll find an unhealthy way. And hence, I would submit the astronomical explosion of all forms of addictions in order to relieve the existential loneliness or pain of all that time on our hands. That's one thing. And also to fill the time. To fill the time with something that will stimulate us. We talked about all the addictions. Let's talk about the addiction to your... Smartphone, to video games, gaming. An addiction can be just, can you live without this, without checking your text? Can you go to sleep without your phone? Etc., etc. This is all due, as a matter of fact, as a side product, side effect of the leisure, the, the, the ease. If technology didn't exist, we wouldn't have this issue. When people were toiling, as I said, nine hours or more in the field, and there was no technology, there were no machines to bring them information and so on. Everything was just through human contact. You can imagine that all the addictions that we have wouldn't, wasn't, weren't existent. Besides the fact that we didn't have the time. Who had the time to talk about anxiety or go to therapy when you're busy struggling to survive, to make ends meet? And especially if you're dealing with oppression or other issues that fighting for survival. There's simply no time. There's no time for dysfunctionality, basically. Whether everybody was the most healthy person, perhaps, perhaps not. But there was no time to dwell on it. The more free time that was freed up allowed for the vacuum that creates a situation where people can become and do become addicted. So that's a critical component as well. So that means the key, again, going back to the point, is to reach, to go back to the root and discover that the, the answer is to find a way to satisfy the soul's aspirations. Which brings me to the historical element, and one of the reasons I'm talking about it this week. When you look in the story in the Bible, the first time addiction is described, even though the word is not used. So we have different stories. We have the story of Noah, who became intoxicated after the flood. But you have in this week's chapter, you have an interesting story. The two sons of Aaron, the high priest, so this was the beginning of the erection of the establishment of the holy temple, the sanctuary. And they are so excited because they were very spiritual. And this is the first time they're going to experience the divine, divine ecstasy. As the commentaries explain that they, with their great passion and zeal and fervor and fire, they ran into the holy of holies, but they were not prepared. 
So it says that they brought an offering. They brought a strange fire came and it consumed them. And they died. Sometimes called foreign fire, alien fire. Reminds you of the word? Sometimes that's used for a drug, for OD, an overdose. So they didn't drug, it wasn't through drugs, even though it does say they did drink. But it came from a very powerful place. They wanted to experience transcendence. They wanted to experience something that's completely beyond. And it came out of their strength that ultimately, when you don't have the containers, they couldn't return. This may sound sacrilegious, but whenever I read that story, it reminds me something I was always very fascinated by. I would even say consumed by. You know, you hear in the early 70s, some of the great legends, the great musical giants, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, just to name a few, who in their early 20s all OD'd. They were geniuses in their fields. Why did they OD? Or the artist, Rothko, a Jewish artist from Russia, who committed suicide at the height of his career. And others who may not have OD'd, but they've been definitely affected because these were souls on fire. They were seeking and reaching. In the words of the Kabbalah, they had the Rotzei, Rotze means a yearning, a deep yearning, a deep aspiration, pining for something greater that is not tangible. In the words of Jimi Hendrix, in his purple haze, excuse me while I kiss the sky. They wanted to kiss the sky and beyond. But they did not have the containers, the second dimension, shuv. Rotze shuv, shuv is the resolution that resolves the tension. You can't have a heart that just is... Is, is only expanding. You have to also contract and expand. Breathe, exhale, inhale. You need the balance. Yes, you need the peaks, but you need the valleys. You need a cardiogram. It needs to be a balanced cycle, a balanced rhythm. And when you have a great soul, a powerful soul, and you keep reaching higher and higher, and you don't have a way to ground it and to integrate it into your regular life, you stand the risk. An addiction. An addiction on one hand coming from a very powerful place. They were addicted. They wanted something. They wanted to taste the divine. That's what Nodav and Aviyu wanted. But they could not contain it. And they were actually called the sacred ones. They sanctified God. But as we read later in the chapters, God says to Moses to tell Aaron, no, no. Here is how you want to enter the Holy of Holies. Here is how you do it. You need to have a method because we need to be souls within bodies. We cannot just ignore our bodies and expire in what is called a spiritual ecstasy. But we need to be able to re-enter. Like you find the story in the Talmud of the four great great sages who entered into the orchard, it's called the Pardes, which is another spiritual ecstatic experience. One went mad, one died, one became an apostate, and only one, Rabbi Akiva the fourth, entered in peace and came out in peace. He had the balance. He had the humility, he had the preparation. So addiction has to, is a double-edged sword. It comes from a very powerful drive, but it's being misdirected. And it needs to be harnessed and directed and channeled to the right place. Like the fire we talked about. The foreign fire. Ezzarov, strange foreign fire. Alien fire. And fire needs to be harnessed. So then, of course, is the question, how do we do that? So it's interesting, talk about the 12-step program, which has worked and does work for so many people. And it's built on 
the principle that I realize I've come, I'm not in control of my own life, so I submit to a higher power. Submit to a higher power. Surrender, which is another word for addiction. But surrendering not to the substances or behaviors or other elements that are driving your life. You're submitting yourself to something greater than you are. That is the key to it all. Because you need to redirect. It's not enough just to say, okay, I'm going to suppress my desire, my need. When you're very hungry or thirsty, it's almost impossible to suppress. You need to fill that, that void. So you need to find another place to commit to. But not commit to a physical thing. You have to commit to something that's greater than you are. We're there. It's not enslavement because you are then trans- you're connecting to something that's transcendent, not something that you are devoted, not something that's, that's taking control of your life, but something that you can be absorbed in something greater than yourself that doesn't have the negative aspects that physical, behavioral, and psychological addictions have. That's the general principle, a type of what we would call bittel, a word I've used many times, bittel, a type of suspending yourself to a cause greater than yourself. You'd be surprised what that can accomplish. Now, it's not that easy to do for anybody because we're always driven by self-interest. And we're also driven, especially an addict, is looking for their hit. They're looking for their high. They're not looking to dedicate themselves to something else. But that's exactly what you need. If you want to rip away the attachment and dedication to something that is controlling you, you need to take the dedication and direct it elsewhere And it should be more powerful than this thing. So it becomes a a tug of war. And who's going to win? But first first you need that cause. So I would say to each one of us, we always need the help of others. It's very difficult to do alone. But what you're driving for is to get connected and attached to something with so much passion that it's more powerful than the attachment to something that is negative. So when we talk about a 12-step program, yes, there's the 12 steps, the famous 12 steps, but I want to refer to another 12-step program that goes back thousands of years, the Kabbalistic 12-step program. So you may be familiar with the idea of the 10 spheres, the building blocks of existence are called the 10 spheres, and they are reflective in our own 10 faculties, our conscious faculties, three cognitive ones and seven emotional, that's 10. But there are another two that are not discussed about, not discussed maybe as, as common, even though they're part of the whole picture. And they're called the transcendent faculties, the superconscious ones. So above the ten spheres is a level called Kesser, the crown. The crown is transcendent, it's above, it hovers. And it's made up of two components. In the Hebrew words, Atik, Yoimen, and Arich, Ampen. Atik and Arich. Two levels of the superconscious and the level, another level super superconscious. So together you have 12. Even though in the book of formation it makes it very clear there are 10 spheres, not 11 and not 9, because in the conscious level only 10, but when you take into account the forces behind the curtain, under the dashboard you have another two. So in a way you have a 12 step Kabbalistic mystical system that can counter and, inter, and, and um, affect and redirect the energies of your mind and your emotions and your superconscious being driven by something that is an unhealthy addiction. So let's go through that. Let's start with the conscious and we'll go move to the superconscious. When a person is completely addicted to something, completely, in any way addicted, what does that mean? 
it means it's taking control over you. So even though you can be functional, but your mind and your emotions are have a priority. You know what you want. And when you need it, that takes control. No matter what your schedule is like, no matter what your, fam- your family may be waiting for you or other things, when you feel you need that high, when you feel you need that hit, you are going to take your mind and figure out ways to get it. And you see people are brilliant, brilliant in their ways. Even when they're deprived, they find all kinds of ingenious ways to use their mind to figure out how am I going to get what I need to satisfy my addiction, to satisfy my, to fill my void, to relieve my pain, to numb myself, or to get the high, to get the pleasure that I get, even if it's only instantaneous. And of course the emotions, even more so. The mind is how to, but the emotions is what really drives you. It's your impulses are now, I am driven emotionally, I need this. It's not just a cognitive experience. So if you go through the three and three cognitive and the seven emotions in a real healing system, what you'd want to have, and I'm not going to go through a whole comprehensive, exhaustive process here, but I want to be brief about it. Each one of our faculties has become addicted, not just you as a person. So let's go through it from the top of the, the, the three cognitive and then the seven emotional. So the three cognitive faculties are called Chachma Bina Das. Sometimes it's translated as wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. But I think a better translation is conceptualization, development, and conclusion. So a concept always begins with a flash of an idea. You have an idea. Then you develop it, and then that development comes to some conclusion. When a person has become an addictive, pers- addictive personality, has begun to act out that way, their chachma bin adas, those three faculties, are also controlled by the addiction. And you will conceive of ways, and you will develop ideas, and you will come to the conclusions of how you are going to gain your relief or the needs that you have. So your mind has become polluted to some extent. This doesn't mean that you can't be using your mind for other things, but when it comes to the addictive elements, the mind has become is somewhat controlled by that, somewhat or very much so. So even when you're consciously focusing on one thing, in the back of your mind, you know, afterwards or before, you already have planned what I'm going to be doing next. <clears throat> now this requires a very sober and a very honest and brutally honest and sincere introspection to come to discover how much your mind is controlled. So in essence, what you really want to do is how do I, re, we said before, we want to rechannel, redirect that the, the, the concept, the, the development and the conclusions should be directed towards something that is also an attachment, but not to an addictive item or object or behavior or substance, but to something healthy, something holy. It can be something you study, something you learn with another, somewhere you are using your mind to help others, to help a cause, to be innovative in that way, and it should give you that satisfaction. So, both, so each one of the three cognitive faculties needs to be redirected in that way. And the same thing with the emotions. What are the seven emotions? They are chesed, gevura, teferes, netzach, choyd, yesoid, malchus. Those are the Hebrew words. If you're familiar with my book on the Omer, the spiritual guide to the counting of the Omer, which, by the way, after Passover, the second day of Passover, we begin this counting, which is a guide toward emotional refinement. 
it goes through the seven emotions and breaks them down seven times seven equals 49. We have also a wonderful app, which is called My Omer. You can check it out. It's being updated now for this new year. But there you go through a literally introspective process of looking where your emotions are being driven. As a matter of fact, I remember a few years ago, I got a call from a city in the United States, in Salt Lake City, a psychiatrist who runs a rehab, drug and alcohol center. And he told me that this book, the Omer book, is what he, he says, the best tool that he's ever found where he has people, his patients, are, are required reading and required to have a journal. Because there, it's not just I'm com- committing not to be addicted, I'm committing to be a good person and not to follow my addictions, but it forces you to look at yourself in a very in- personal way, in a very detailed way. So to just give a few examples and to go through the seven emotions. So the first is love. We spoke about love attachment. Everybody needs love, everybody needs to give love, everybody needs to receive love. But love could also be a double-edged sword if you don't know how to stop giving love or you don't know how to give love in the first place or the love is being attached, their attachment is going to the wrong place. So he requires each one of his patients to actually write a journal, where do you stand with your love? And then comes the, the, the in love itself, you have to have the love within love, you have to have the discipline within love. Like raindrops, it's important for the rain to fall, but it has to fall in drops, not in buckets, or else it'll, drown, it'll flood the fields. And the, the, where it comes down in drops, then it comes down, it's absorbed drop by drop. So harnessing your attachment, harnessing your love. So the same thing is with discipline. Some people are very disciplined, but they're lacking love. They're very, very didactic and very much, everything is un, under a, a, a schedule and they defined boundaries, but they're lacking a warmth. They're lacking the love that's necessary. And the third emotion is compassion. And the fourth is endurance and determination. The fifth is humility and yielding. The sixth is bonding and again, attachment of a different sort, but it's more of an attachment to another. And then finally, dignity. Malchus, dignity, a sense of dignity. Each of these seven emotions can be polluted by an addiction. And the goal is to to detach it from the thing that you're addicted to and reattach it and reconnect and redirect it towards something that's positive and healthy. Now, this requires already a breakdown for each individual. As I said, I'm speaking more in general terms. But if you do this effectively, you really can go through and clean up the addictive elements, the negatively addicted elements in each one of these 10, three and seven conscious faculties, and do what we spoke about earlier, which is to get to the root of redirecting it toward a good cause. We're not talking about eliminating it because addictive personality is a very healthy thing to be attached. The problem is you have to be attached to the right things. You want to be attached to something that is not toxic, not to toxic air, but to pure air, or in this case, to the pure expression of love and the pure expression of discipline, the pure expression of compassion, of determination, of yielding, of bonding, and of dignity, human dignity which in many ways addiction, if it does anything, it pollutes, it so defiles the dignity of a human being. The fact that we are enslaved to something instead of we being the master. So that too needs to be directed in the proper way. I remember one addict once told me, I don't like to, I don't like to label anyone an addict, but the person called themselves an addict. They said, I came to realize that my attachment 
My very dignity was from things that were completely opposite of dignity. I thought I found a majesty, I found honor and pride in things that made me behave in a, in a bestial way, in a selfish way, in hurting others. Because I was so desperate for it, then you convince yourself of everything. You convince yourself this is your very essence, is dependent on it. And so when I realized how I'm behaving, how I'm lying, this person was dealing with gambling and other things, drugs as well, lying, stealing. I was hurting the closest people. I was the most undignified person, and I thought this was my dignity. That's an example where Malchus was completely hijacked and held hostage by these addictions. So it's critical to go through all each one of these ten and find that redemption. Then we come to the last two, which are, on one hand, much more difficult to address, but they are also at the heart and root of everything. Because at the end of the day, it's the superconscious, the things that we don't recognize that really drive our lives. If a person, for example, experienced serious trauma in their childhood, loss, lack of attachment, or a healthy, unhealthy attachments or de- and, and much detachment, that becomes embedded in our subconscious, or I'm going to call superconscious, and that drives the rest of your faculties to be driven toward trying to find relief. So now, how do we get to the superconscious? So the first step is, of course, you have to go through the conscious levels. But ultimately, then you come to the, the higher levels, which also can be the lower levels. And what are we talking about here? Forces that are not visible, but, are necessar- but, are, but never, nevertheless are very much part of the, of the equation here. So there's the concept of transcendence. Transcendence is not quite cognitive nor emotional. It's something that's greater than we are. There are many people when they talk about when they're in a stupor and they're in some way, whatever, whether they're sitting at a casino and just completely consumed at a blackjack table or taking some drug or alcohol, they'll sometimes describe, I, still, I was in a transcendent state. I felt I was rising above my daily vicissitudes, my daily ups and downs, and coming to a place. Yes, later I discovered I was numbing myself, but I found transcendence. Now, that sounds like a strange word. How would you use transcendence? If anything, it brought you down into the gutter. But you don't feel that. You feel the relief. You feel the high. So it's a transcendence that's completely distorted. It's a transcendence that has been defiled to the point that you call it transcendence, but really... It's the exact opposite. So how do you counter that? Is by finding a healthy form of transcendence. By connecting to something that is beyond yourself. A cause. The divine. God. Music. Something that lifts your spirit, but not due to your being subjugated to it and enslaved to it, but something that, on the contrary, you let go of yourself and allow it to carry you to another place. Now again, I wish it was as easily said than done, as easily done as said, but it's not. But we first have to understand the concept. That's what you really want. You want to be able to say, I have found something that leads me to transcendence. I was once dealing with this in the area of sexual addiction. Because sexuality touches a very transcendent part of a person. But if you get addicted to the wrong form of sexuality, where it's not connected to real intimacy and relationships, but it's either through whether it's prostitution or pornography, what happens is it's touching that part of you, but not really filling you in the fullest sense of the word. It's an escape and doesn't spill over in a full sense of 
your whole being. So in dealing with that, the only way really is to redirect it for touching somebody's soul on that same level by experiencing something very mystical, something very spiritual that also touches that part of the soul. Now again, it's not easy, but at least there's a formula. And the formula works if you allow it to work. So the first, the 11th step would be transcendence. But then there's something even higher than that. That's arich. That's the first level of keser. So there's the 10 conscious, the 11th. The 12th is the highest level. It's called yechida, the oneness of the soul. That is when, to use in a positive example of it, is when you're standing in front of a wonder, one of the wonders of the world, and you completely lose yourself. You're so mesmerized, so captivated by a scene, by a song, by an experience that there's no longer a subject and an object. It's like when you're engrossed and immersed in a book and you're so taken by it, you don't even realize you're reading a book. You don't even realize you're turning pages. You don't realize you're reading lines and words. And someone touches you like you suddenly you come out of a daze. What happened is you have become completely absorbed, completely lost in the experience. And that's when we experience ultimate oneness, no self-consciousness, a total seamlessness. Some people call it being in the zone, being in the zone, where you don't feel that you're experiencing it. It's one thing I say, oh, you know what, I'm experiencing a beautiful thing. Here you can't even talk about it. You can't even describe it. You're just in it. And very often you can't just, it's very hard to generate. It's not something you can just press a button. You can work hard hours and hours and then suddenly you enter in that place and you don't even know that you've entered because of the, the very fact that you become conscious you've entered, that you've entered is already an issue. Just to use an example, if I said to you right now, think about this, what is your left leg doing? So suddenly you think about your left leg, oh, it's resting on the ground, I'm standing, I feel something. But before I said that, what was it? Well, you weren't even aware that it was there. Why? Not because your left leg wasn't there. Because you're not the, the, because the consciousness, the sensation of it is already a definition. To be something doesn't mean that you have to feel it. As a matter of fact, if someone said, what does health feel like? If you have an answer, that's not a good sign. Health shouldn't feel like anything. Your breathing should be seamless. If you feel something, if you feel something uh, sharp or something dull, that means there's a problem. Health is a seamless flow where everything is just working smoothly. You're not supposed to feel your heartbeat unless you're running or exerting yourself. So seamlessness means a lack of self-consciousness, that the self has now become absorbed in something greater than the self. And that's the ultimate 12th step in the 12th level, where a person loses themselves in that experience. When you're able to reach that, that ultimately is the core root, that if you can continue to build that, slowly it'll free you from the enslavement of any form of addiction of anything else that holds, has that hold on you, because that's exactly what an addict will describe. Besides transcendence, they'll describe, I was lost in another, another reality. It just, and I am addicted to that. I want that. I want to lose myself in something greater than me. But the problem is there it's coming through, it's being induced superficially and artificially through other means. It's not coming naturally. That's why it's critical to have the natural absorption into something greater than you are. And that, as I said, can be through a book, it can be through music, it can be through spirituality. That's the vital, critical component. But it's not enough just the 12th. You have to go through all the 10 and 11 
all the 11 steps before that because they're all part of the process. So at the end of it, my friends, addiction, not that I want to give it any redeeming element, addiction, addictive personality is someone that usually is passionate. That's what addiction is. The problem is the passion is being misdirected, misguided. So that's why you'll find people who do great things in this world are very passionate. They're addicted to what they're doing, but the, the addiction is not coming through a substance or a behavior. It's coming through something that's greater than they are, and they're allowing that to lift them up instead of something that's outside of them that's pulling them down or pulling them toward that. And that's the key difference, the object. Not the passion and not the very devotion and surrender, but to what you're surrendering and to what you're passionate, to what you're devoted. So though no one can suggest, and I will not be presumptuous to suggest that one conversation about this can do the healing, I believe that some of the seeds I hopefully, hopefully that I planted here can really help each one of us into developing, that would be the real goal, developing this into a formula, that an actual workable model and formula that can, that can work and help each of us in our own ways. Some of us are addicted in subtle ways. Some of us are addicted in very overt and very extreme ways. And of course, there's much pain and loss and detachment and, or unhealthy attachment, attachment disorder, they call it sometimes, that can be affecting us. But that doesn't mean you cannot find redemption. And it doesn't have to happen overnight. It's a step-by-step process. It's a really step-by-step process. So this has been Simon Jacobson, and it's a real honor, as always, especially talking about sensitive topics like this, which is the topics of our soul, of your soul, of our matters that are really make us tick, of the psyche. Nothing more important than your psyche, your soul, that your dignity, because that's what makes you indispensable. That's the reason you are here to live up, to fulfill your soul's mission. Which leaves me with that final point. Are you living up to why you were put in this place, in this world? Addiction hijacks you. Addiction, you betray yourself, you betray your cause, you betray your calling, you betray your very essence of being. And healing from addiction and finding a way to re-harness it allows you to reclaim yourself, reclaim your soul, reclaim your calling, reclaim your mission. That's the ultimate goal here. And that's the mission of the Meaningful Life Center, to help us all reclaim the mission that we were charged with. We're not talking about creating something new. It's right in there, as Michelangelo said, when they asked him, how do you carve those beautiful angels in the marble? He said, I saw the angels trapped in the marble, and I carved and carved and set them free. I would like to believe that we, the Meaningful Life Center, myself and our wonderful team, are here to help you and help us carve and carve and set our souls free. So we can soar like the birds in the sky to the highest places and beyond and ultimately live up to and fulfill that mission of bringing that highest levels of transcendence and seamlessness into this material world and really bring healing to this ailing universe on all possible levels, both spiritual, physical, and every other, psychological, emotional, and in every other way. Thank you so much, Simon Jacobson, Meaningful Life Center. Please go to MeaningfulLife.com for more on this topic, for more on other topics. We have a wide array, a, a robust schedule every day, different programs, different, uh, different activities, different exercises. Please join us. Please share with others. Love to hear your feedback and comments. Everyone be blessed. And may we be connected to the highest forces and beyond and channel that into our personal lives in the healthiest possible way. Be well. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center.
Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com donate.